Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get in the know with those in all walks of life, entertainment, music, and in between, and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have a man that's been at the forefront of the biggest movements in music, ranging from disco, dance, house, EDM, hip-hop, you're going to hear his truth and everything else in between. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a round of applause and warm welcome to Beyond the Album Cover to Mr. Nicky Ciano. Mr. Ciano, welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, sir. Thank you, Jarrell. Thank you. Am I, I saying your name right? Yes, sir. You are pronouncing my name correctly, and I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this interview. No problem, man. All right, so first off, where did your love of music come from? And do you remember the first record that you went to go buy with your own money at a record store? Wow, okay. I guess, well, I was, the first thing that, that I came across that really turned me on was more than, um, was more than, are you hearing that sound in the background? I'm sorry. I yeah, got a you're dog. good. You're good. Could you could you could you open that door for her so that she This is part of life. Um the first thing I got into before I got into actually what was playing, I got into how it sounded. For some reason, I was really inspired by the sound of things and the depth of sound and like when orchestras were playing and there was a really heavy duty orchestration and things had multiple harmonies and multiple instruments were actually creating um, harmonies that cre blended and created new notes because you know, a four-part harmony creates a fifth note. But um, so before I even, um, before I even was into the music, I was into the sound. So the first records I was buying were things that sounded plush and orchestras playing and stuff like that. A lot of classical stuff. The first thing that I really remember buying for myself and saying, I got to have this album was a, a thing called Eli and the 13th Confession by Laura Nero. And uh, she, you, not a lot of people don't know her name, but you, everybody pretty much knows her songs because if you ever heard of the group Fifth Dimension, she wrote all of their songs, every one of them. So um, she and Blood, Sweat and Tears and a whole bunch of groups but she recorded her songs too, and her albums were um, kind of cult um, classics. And and I got into rock and roll before I was ever into dance music because that's what I was exposed to first. My brothers lived downstairs. He was ten years older than me, so at twelve and thirteen years old, I'm going through his records. So this is 1968, 69, and I'm finding, you know, the Beatles records and Laura Nero, Bee Gees' first album, you know, the first albums. Odessa was the album that I really thought was really cool by them. And then I um, was hanging out in the village and somewhere along the line, 
I got introduced to like dance music and it just changed my life. Like it lit my soul. I, I knew that that was the music I had to um, collect. And, um, and I quickly started collecting, um, I guess the first soul music, these were all on 45s, you know, back then we collected 45s. I guess the first um, soul records, I bought what, what a gospel thing called Rain by Dorothy Morrison, which was a dance floor hit in 1970. And uh, when I heard it, I just had to have it. And I went out shopping for it and you couldn't find it in any record store. And I went to record store after record store. I spent four days walking the streets of Manhattan looking for a record store that had this cut Rain by Dorothy Morrison. And I found this place called Colony on 53rd and Broadway. And they had a wall of 45s. And he had all the songs I was hearing at a club I went to called The Loft when I was 15. Mm -hmm. So this reminds me of the days when record hunting was a chore, but a labor of love. Certain enthusiasts would have their own stores. And if you got in real good with the owner, they'll probably cut you a deal and put some records aside for you. <laughs> Better than yet. If you got in real good with the guy behind the record counter, he would turn his head as you took the 1045s you liked and stuff them down your 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 sleeve of your coat and walked out with them for free. Wow. So they <laughs> didn't were have a lot of money to spend on records back then. Wow. The five finger discount. You mentioned uh, Laura yeah. Hero. Was David Geffen her manager? At one point in time, David Geffen. Yeah, David Geffen was her first manager and uh, he convinced her to sell her catalog, which I thought was a big mistake because her catalog, she sold her catalog for a million dollars, which was a lot of money back then. But she would have made a billion dollars from that catalog. Mm -hmm. Her song Stone Soul Picnic, Eli's Coming, on and on. Definitely one of the greats that I felt she would have gotten the same recognition as Carol King had some other Stone, things broke her way. Stony End, Stone Love, uh, not Stone Love, but Stony End. Barbara Streisand recorded a whole album of her songs too. She really, and when I die and when I'm gone, there'll be one child born to carry on. She wrote that I, just endless. Yeah, she was a great great writer and a great vocalist. Oh my God. If you listen to her early records, she like has a range and a vocal like sound. Again, the Sonics, I was so attracted to her because she'd go from a very low note to a very, very high note and screech it out. And I just, I was like, wow, listen to this shit. And uh, at the time I was seeing this girl Robin and, and we would just sit there and listen to her album over and over and over again you know it's it's today i feel like music is disposable back then when you got an album you knew every groove on that plate you know you just learned it because you played it over and over and over i knew every word i knew where the strings came in on every song i knew where the horns came in i knew the songs like Frankie said this about me when he, Frankie Knuckles, 
um, who I met in 1972 when the gallery opened and he started working for me. This is before he even thought he wanted to be a DJ. And he started working for me at a club I own called The Gallery. And he said in an interview in 98 that one of the things he learned from me was to learn your music, know everything about the songs you're playing. Mm -hmm. And as a DJ, you got to know the songs you're playing. You got to know the room because prior to the 12 inch record, if you would look at the vinyl, the grooves would be almost condensed and pressed. But when the 12 inch record came out, it was all about keeping everybody on the floor because I had a chance to interview Tom Moulton and it was all about keeping everybody dancing on the floor. So that's why those songs are like four or five minutes plus. Well, yeah, well, that was the long versions were to keep people on the floor. But the reason why the 12 inch came out was because things were getting to six and seven minutes and you could put them on a 45, a seven inch, but the sound on a 12 inch was much, much better. And it created more bass and more highs. So Tom put it on a 12 inch acetate. And I think the first commercial 12 inch was 10% by double exposure. Um, and also, the grooves told your story because a lot of times I would play a record so much that people were kind of tired of it. And But if you brought it in from the break and just played it to the end, then people enjoyed it because it wasn't the whole record because, you know, if, if they heard it a lot. So the grooves would actually change color where the drum breaks happen. So you can actually see, you wouldn't have to listen in your headphone. I could see it on the record and I would just put the tone arm right there. Wow, that's crazy. And what were some of the other disco clubs that were booming before Studio 54 came to the forefront? Studio 54 was at the end of the era, the total end. Disco really started in 1970, the word didn't really come out yet, but the the grandfather of all these clubs was the loft. And the grandmother of all these clubs was my club, the gallery. And then there was, oh, 12 West, the 10th floor, um, the planetarium, limelight, the first limelight on 7th Avenue South. Um, Sanctuary. Um, oh God, what was that place? Um, uh, my friends know more than I do sometimes. I forget all the names, but there were, it by 1972, there were about 10 places. That's when I opened my club. By 1973, there were 100. By 1974, there were 1,000. And that's when Billboard decided to do their convention. By 75, there were discos everywhere. Infinity was up the block from me. Big, big club. Um, and then studio opened, and that wasn't their first, that wasn't their first club. Stevie, Steve Rebell and Ian Schrager, who owned 
Studio 54 had a club before that called Enchanted Gardens. And that's where I met them because they asked me to play there first. Studio didn't open till 77. So disco was booming way on its way before studio came around and ruined it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And at this time, were all these clubs really competitive with each other? Like if you were DJing at one club, you wouldn't go check out another club to feel their vibe? Was it very territorial? It'd be 10 clubs on the scene. So competition? No, there weren't any competition. People were enjoying having another person open up because, I mean, we opened only two nights a week and both nights we were at capacity, about a thousand. And that was like sardine city. So, and everyone else was doing the same thing. The limelight, on 7th Avenue South, which was the basic weekday club, every night of the week, capacity, capacity, every night of the week. Then as places opened, I'm sorry, let me get this, turn this phone off. I'm so sorry. Um, the Bee Gees documentary yes, on, um, well, the, there's a Bee Gees documentary on HBO that's out called under the um, how can you mend a broken heart and in the second part I play an integral part in the unfolding of the story and um, it was really it's a really good documentary even if you don't like their music that documentary tells you a lot about the music industry and how it worked and this was my big peeve about the whole music industry was they were very short-sighted in how they reacted to disco. You see, you know for a fact, before um, the club scene, there was only one way to get your record on the charts. And that was if it was played on radio. And if you didn't get played on radio, you just didn't have a song that came out that sold anything. But in 1972, when I opened, we started to be able to, because there was 10 of us or 15 of us, we all played the same thing. There just wasn't enough music to have different kinds of music at every club like we do now. Um, so people were going out in mass and wherever they would go, they would hear the same songs. So it created an audience that started to buy those records. And then things hit the charts without any airplay, just from the clubs playing the records. So record companies now had a whole new way to promote their music. And this way, the club way, was free. All they had to do was give us records. And we were their slaves, almost. With radio, they had to pay them motherfuckers to play those records. That, and that's the big payola scheme that happened. Mm -hmm. And we know about payola, palms getting greased. And also because of That's this, right. kids, this was the birth of what we now know as the record pool. Right. And again, <clears throat> the record pool started in 75. And I remember when David called me to the meeting 
to tell me he was opening the record pool. Now, the first club I went to, I said, was The Loft. The owner was David Mancuso, and he was the one who opened the record pool. It wasn't his idea, but he took the idea and ran with it. And he was the only one that had the space to make it happen. He had a, a downstairs where his club was, The Loft, and it was perfect for putting the bins and having the record pool there. And, but before that, we had to go to record companies. And initially, I mean, I remember going out with my friend David and we would get the, where the record companies were and we would go up to like CBS. There was a place um, for CBS to service DJs to give them records, free records in Queens. We were in Manhattan. So we went out to Queens to this little place in Jamaica and it was like an unmarked door. And we were ringing that doorbell and they came to the door and they said, yes. They said, we're DJs. We want to um, get some, you know, we want to get some product. And he said, well, what station are you with? And I said, well, we're club DJs. And he said, this is exactly what happened. We don't service club DJs. And he slammed the door in our face. That was 72. In 73, we were going out every week, every week. We started to develop relationships with different labels. Like, for instance, um, Buddha welcomed us. And therefore, I remember the first song we really hit with Buddha was Creative Sauce. Who is he and what is he to you? We created such a buzz on that record that it hit the charts right away. 20th Century, which was Billy Smith, Love Steam. We created such a buzz. As a matter of fact, he was throwing that album away when we got there. And we took it because they were wearing big Afro wigs on the cover and we thought it was kind of campy. So we wanted to hang the covers on our walls and we go home and we listen to this song, Love Steam and Under the Influence of Love. And we were like, whoa. And we started playing that record every hour on the hour. I mean, it was just, if we loved the record, we would push it just like the radio does. And um, so all those little records started giving us, all those little labels started giving us records and then the big label started seeing that we were pushing those records onto the charts without any radio play. Love Steam was not on the radio until eight months after we started playing it. Eight months. And it hit 135 on the top 200 before they started playing it on the radio. Wow. And so then CBS and... Um, what was the other RCA started saying, oh, come on in. We got some records for you. And that's how, like, I got Love is the Message and was the first person to play that. And TSOP, first person to play that. And Turn the Beat Around, I was the first person to play. Motown, I was the first person to play Love Hangover. A lot of records I broke. Wow, and that just goes to show you people that the club DJs had the power and then once the labels caught wind, they said, hey, we gonna give you what you need because that provides synergy for us and to boost the life of a record. That's right. Uh, it boosts the life. It not only, it, 
it, it actually made life for the records because these records were nothing when we got, no one knew TSOP when I got it. There were only two promotional copies in her bin because it was Christmas and they were going on Christmas hiatus. No one else had that record until they came back on January 15th. And I was playing the hell out of it along with my friend David because we had the only two copies in the city. And that record was out. Before the radio ever played it and they still don't play it right. And love is a message is still being played today on any house club you go to. Right. And can you tell me about your interactions with Larry LeVan? Frankie and Larry were best friends. And when I opened my club in 1972, we had such a hit on our hands. Like we had opening night, we had 700 people. So it was like, whoa, we need to hire some people. And Frankie was talking to my girlfriend, Robin, at the door. She was working the door. And at the end of the night, she came up to the booth with him and said, this guy, Frankie, wants to work for us. And I said, fine, we need people. So he came the next week and he was blowing up my balloons when he asked me, I know a guy, he's a little bit crazy, but he's real talented. Larry is his name. And uh, he needs work too. I said, bring him next week. Larry LeVan became my decorator and Frankie was my balloon blower. And Larry and I became really close friends. We were, we even lived together for a while. Um, and um, like I said, neither one of them wanted to be DJs. They wanted to be, they were both going to FIT, which was the Fast Fashion Institute of New York. And they wanted to be designers. That's, they wanted to design clothes. And Larry had a friend who he would design clothes and his friend would sew them together. And every Saturday night, he'd come to gallery in a new outfit. And I'll never forget this. You know, cap sleeve t-shirt, cap sleeves like this? Mm -hmm. That's a cap sleeve, right? So Larry used to sew the sleeves like that. And a lot of shirts today, they sewed like that. But back then, no one sewed the shit like cap sleeves. He started sewing his sleeves, cap sleeve. And he really was the first person to do that. And he wore that outfit to the gallery every Friday and Saturday night. About three or four months after, and all, all the designers would come to that first gallery. Stephen Burroughs, um, Calvin Klein, Willie Ware, Willie Smith, um, um, Capizio, all the designers of the day would come to the gallery. And about three or four months after he started wearing his cap sleeve t-shirts, we're walking down the village and we pass this place, Capizio. And in the window were like six cap sleeve t-shirt designs, which he had worn to the gallery. And he, we sat down, I'll never forget this, we sat down there and he cried on my shoulder. And that's when I think it turned around for him. And he said, I think I want to be a DJ. 
Wow. And were a lot of these nightclubs your general regular admission clubs or were they after hour spots or private clubs where you pretty much had to have a membership to get in? Mine was private and after hours. Um, and David's was private and after hours. And there were a couple more, but we were the biggest two. And then there was a lot, a lot of bars that had dancing that you just, a lot of them didn't even charge admission. There was a place called Hollywood. That's where I met Richie Kazar, who was the first DJ at Studio 54 along with me. I was hired for the first thing. So it, it there were a, a bunch of different kinds of clubs, bars, um, but mine was after hours. Uh, and and private. It was the party after the party. Now I know for what? go ahead. I not like we weren't like studio that said, oh, you're not dressed right. You don't come in. Oh, you don't look right. You don't no. We did it very, I thought, democratically. You wanted to become a member, you had to be recommended by a member. That was it. And you got a membership card and it was a free it wasn't a membership. We called it an invitation and it was free. We didn't charge for it. We just said you just had to be recommended by a current member. That's it. So, so kind of like how they do for the country club. Somebody got to bring you in. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Now I want to know this right here. Except I know they charge big money for those members. Yeah. You won't see me at the country club. Cause my golf game is terrible, but I want and to then, go, go ahead. ahead. I want to ask you this. And then Paradise Garage opened and they charged a lot of money for their memberships. But Paradise Garage, again, 77 is when Paradise Garage opened. I'm already into the gallery six years when Paradise Garage opened. Larry had another club before Paradise Garage called Reed Street, which was really cool. The, um, it was in an old meat processing plant. And the dance floor was in the meat refrigeration locker. <laughs> and uh, he would turn on that refrigeration when it got hot in there and it would get freezing. And then he'd put on like 10 really heavy duty songs and people still be sweating in that room. It was something. Yeah, I bet. And I want to ask you this as far as house music goes. You have some people say house started in New York and some say that it started in Chicago. What's your take? on the origination Chicago, of house music. 100%. Uh, La Frankie really did expose us to house and do, I think, um, one of his records, which was um, with Jamie Principal, was really the first big house record, I thought. Um, what was the name of that song? I, I have it on my drive, but I, I don't want to look it up now. But it was a Jamie Principal produced by Frankie Knuckles and Baby Want to Ride, I think it was. Um, and that was the first big house song that hit all over the nation. And definitely Chicago. Mm -hmm. And definitely Frankie Knuckles. The yeah, Godfather of house. Absolutely. 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 And a lot of those classic house records, Jesse Saunders, On and On, Chippy, Bad Boy Bill, Steve Silk. I mean, and the ones he didn't, the ones he didn't produce, he played them first and made them happen. And he would 
at the time, Larry was already had the garage. I was off in another direction, but Larry um, and and I was playing the records too. But um, Larry had a big, big um, exposure, pl a place for to expose those records. So Frankie would come in from Chicago with a bunch of records and hand them to Larry. Larry would go through them and he would play them at garage. And Frankie would be playing them at the warehouse in Chicago. And they just, it just took off. Right. It just changed the floor, the music. And I was talking about the record companies and how screwed up they were. Um, they, um, they saw at a point, they would had these um, jackets, record jackets. And the record jacket said, Disco. It had a big banner, disco on it. And in 1974, if a record had a disco banner, it sold a hundred thousand copies without people knowing what it was, where it was, or anything. They just bought it. So, and I say this in the in the documentary, record companies got really greedy and they started putting all their garbage in those bannered jackets and started shipping them out like crazy. And that's really was part of the downfall of disco totally was all these people started buying these records and they were crap. And the record companies did it to themselves. Their greediness caused disco to fucking fail. Right. So I agree. They got they got ten dollars for the record and they ruined an industry that would have made them a billion dollars if they waited a couple of months. Right. Stupid people. Right. I agree because when they see the cash raking in is good, they're like, hey, we're going to slap something, say disco. You're going to be dumb enough to buy it. I mean, Rick Dees put out Disco Duck and I had a co-worker that I worked in what radio with. shit. Yeah, I had a co-worker that worked at a radio station in Memphis with Rick Dees. I know some stations that were within the mileage of the station he was working on could not play that record. But it was like a glut of disco records. You know, when Sesame Street put out a disco record, you knew that time was ticking. Yeah, I there was a lot of records I wouldn't play. I just wouldn't play that shit. I wouldn't. Disco Duck. Oh, my God. I don't, I don't think... Any copy of Disco Duck I had, I either sold it or broke it because I, I just thought it was horrible. And then there were a couple of other things, even Uptown Festival by Shallon. I didn't like that. I thought it was a big ripoff of all these great songs, you know? Um, and I, I, some guy at the gallery asked me to play it. Oh, and I said, no, man, I don't like... And he was badgering me, finally... At about five in the morning, I put it on. And by the time it was playing, like halfway through, I was so sickened by the sound of it. I stopped it. I just took it off. And I went on the mic. I said, does anyone like that record? Eh, I got a very well, here it is. And I threw it out on the dance floor and I never played it again. I hated that kind of commercial bullshit records. I wouldn't play them. Right. You know, they had to be funky. They had to be real. Like, I didn't grow up with records that were called disco records. I grew up with records that were called R&B, 
or danceable R and B or um, danceable R and B. That was what we were calling them. And I didn't know that word disco until like 1974. So when that started coming out I was like okay okay but then I realized the reason why the word was getting so popular is the record companies wanted to brand that word and and it would be a selling point for them you know so the greed again greed it's killing our world I mean it's still today it's killing our world I agree so unlike Gordon Gecko, greed is not good no it no, no, it is not good. Now, the huh. one thing about the Bee Gees documentary that I found surprising was the fact that they were already huge in England before they came to America, exploded, and then got shot over the top with Saturday Night Fever. And they got caught in the crosshairs with the whole Disco Sucks movement that was started by Steve Dahl in Chicago at WLUP. Exactly. And the reason why they got caught in the crosshairs was because they had five records in the top 10 when Steve Dahl started spouting his vitriol. So he just looked at the charts and said, well, I'm naming them as the main cause because, you know, they have all five of the 10 spots of the top 10. And he started just calling them out over and over and over again. And they got caught in the crosshairs. You're right. And they couldn't work after that. They they couldn't they couldn't get a job. They couldn't do a show anywhere. People would not book them. They were that radioactive. And then when I looked at the movement, the photos from the disco demolition night at Comiskey Park, where the White Sox was playing the Detroit Tigers, they had the four fifty second right. game because the field was just a mess because everybody was storming on, records were being right. blown up. That this movement right. When you look at it, it was very anti-minority and anti-LGBTQ. And a lot of those records, you know, I didn't consider Stevie Wonder a disco artist. I considered him an R&B artist. So a lot of those records were R&B records, I thought, not disco records. And like I said, I grew up on danceable R&B. When Eddie Kendricks came out with People Hold On, one of the biggest records of my youth with Girl, You Need to Change Your Mind and, and um, A Date with the Rain on it. There was no disco word, but that album was awesome. And we all knew it and we all bought it. I mean, it was just about danceable records. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of them were rock, gospel. It didn't matter because back then I had eight hours to fill with about 40 records. So I welcomed other genres making danceable records. Mm, so now when you're up in the booth, how do you know not to drop this record this early in the set or too late in the set and kind of get a feel for the room where it's like, okay, use this for my warm-up set, use this for the- You're talking about now or back then? Back during, <laughs> back during those days. And now as well, if you want to elaborate on that. Well, I, you know, I, I always do this and I think it's really important for people to develop their instincts, not so much, oh, will they dance to this? Will they, no, 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 no. You, if you're good, what you're, 
what you want to hear, what you want to dance to, they'll dance to. In other words, I played for myself, really. And they just loved it. You know, they just were into it. I do a radio show um, on uh, Legends of Vinyl Visual Radio every Sunday night at six. And every time I do that radio show, like there'll be no one on the thing and then it crashes because people just they know that they're going to be into what I'm playing because they know I'm going to play something good. I'm not going to play something that my friend did and it, it, you know, and he's pushing it. If it's not good, I can't do that. I, so I always played by instinct and now more than ever, I just, I, I meditate and I, for about 12 years, I meditated every day in the 80s and through the 90s. And I started to just get, not listen to me, but listen to the inspiration that's out there. And uh, I just think it's, you know, it's the source or the God or the energy of life that directs you if you let it. If you're all about your ego and in your way, it's not going to work. You got to be able to get out of your ego in order to let that come in. And then you got to listen <laughs> because a lot of people, they'll hear, okay, play this next, but then they'll second guess it and they'll go, no, but I think this will be, no, 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 no. The first thought is God, intuition, inspiration every thought after that is your ego right so the first thought is the purest thought mm -hmm. and the funny thing around this time when disco was booming you have punk rock which was emerging down at cbgb's maxis kansas city and then Absolutely. in the parks you had hip-hop that was coming at the same time so what was that like being around seeing those two underground genres come to be a mainstream force like with blondie television new york dolls and then all the early i was loving busy it. being dj Hollywood. i love music i love music if it's good you know um sugar hill gang i think i was one of the first people to go on that record um rap is delight i i loved good music curtis blow <laughs> these are the breaks those real early hip-hop records I went on them like crazy. I played them in, in, I was playing at a club called Buttermilk Bottom then, and I played them right away. I didn't, I listened to it. I said, this is hot. I'm playing it. And, you know, if it's music and it's danceable and it's good, I play it. You know, for a long time in, in like from 99 till 2010, I was always on tour and I would be hearing a lot of EDM that really sounded good to me. So I, once in a while, I'd take one of those records and throw it in my set if I liked it. Um, like Night of the Jaguar. That was a, a really, I thought, an EDM record, but it was hot as hell. And so I played the shit out of that. Um, but if I had to listen to a whole night of EDM, it would be very difficult for me. Mm -hmm. Very difficult. Yeah. Because I feel like words are the driving force 
sometimes behind music and behind growth and behind change. When the Vietnam War was happening, every artist was pull, putting out songs that were anti-Vietnam. And when Marvin Gaye put out the album, What's Going On, which was the biggest anti-Vietnam record ever, one year to the day it was released, they signed the end of the war um, pact. So that's what music can do. And so I need those words sometimes to give me that inspiration. I play instrumentals, but words are my main thing. Right. Uh, can you tell me about Neil Bogart and Casablanca? Well, first of all, I'm in New York, right? Casablanca was in California. And I got this record called uh, I Love to Love You, Baby. It was on this label called Oasis. Not yet Casablanca. And um, I was like, oh, this is interesting. And it's 13 minutes. I can go to the bathroom and get high and then come back <laughs> and feel better about playing some more music. So when they announced they signed Donna Summer, they got on the ra the radar. Um, and Donna had a couple of big hits. And when I'm playing one Saturday night at the gallery, Neil, not Neil, but um, uh, he was a promotion man for Casablanca. Um, oh, God, I'll, I'll think of his name as I'm talking. Um, he comes in to um, the gallery and he's and I wave him into the booth and he says, I got the new Donna Summer record on, you know, on an acetate, which is what they press to listen to it before they press the record. And he says, you really want to play this cut. I feel love. It's amazing. And I said to him, Mark Paul Simon, I said to him, Mark, I don't play records just without listening to them first. He said, just listen in the headphones. So I listened in the headphones and I heard it right away. This is something different and new. And I put it on and the place lit up. So I was one, really one of the first people to play I Feel Love. And then he took that acetate back because it was the only one he had. I was so mad at him. I didn't speak to him for months. He had to have Donna Summer call me and apologize. And then we started talking again. Wow. And it just goes to show you these dance-oriented labels were exploding. Like we mentioned, Casablanca. You also had Prelude. And then down in Florida, TK, TK Records. Right. Prelude. Um the biggie, Sal Soul, baby. Um, unbelievable. Lolita Holloway. I mean, I worked that record. I played every, almost every cut off that record. Um, hit and run. We're growing stronger the longer. Dreaming. Um, there was a slow song called The Man's Way. We would play a slow song during the night. And I, I loved her. And then they, so they brought her to the gallery to sing one Saturday night. It was her first um, 
concert in a club and we had we our place held a thousand people we had 1600 that night and it, boy it was so crowded but it was amazing. Wow. Lolita was supposed to do two songs. She did seven. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. And during this time when Madonna first broke, was there a lot of resistance? Because, you know, when Holiday came out, it was got, it got play on R&B radio. And then yeah. later on when she did Vogue, she had Willie Ninja, who's very well known on the ballroom scene. If you look at the movie, Paris well, is Burning. And the TV by Vogue, by when... When Vogue came out, she was already well established. When Holiday came out and Burning Up for Your Love and those first that first record and the second record, that was Jelly Bean. So he produced that record and he was working at the Sound Factory and I was it the Sound Funhouse, Funhouse. Jelly Bean Benitez. Yeah, Jelly Bean Benitez. John Benitez. And he would play that record to death and everybody was hearing it and he created the buzz for that record. So a lot of that stuff, a lot of her success what was him. That it really was. And they lived together for a while. And like I said, then he did her second album and then they parted ways. Now, what was your first thought when you first got your copy of Michael Jackson's Off the Wall? I I was amazed because you had like five good danceable cuts off of there. I didn't know what to play first. I loved it. I thought it was far better than anything he had done with the Jacksons. Far better. And I thought the Jackson stuff was amazing. But when he did his solo stuff and he broke with Off the Wall, that album never left I mean, I would play every I played every cut on there, you know, all the five danceable cuts. And it, it was a phenomenon. It was really was. Um, and then when, you know, um, Billie Jean came out and, and that Thriller album, it was it it really was amazing. It was an amazing ride for him. I thought, my God, what? Uh, we lost so many great people. Whitney, Michael. I, I just, it's sickening. It is sickening. Whitney kills me because every time I hear her voice, I think, listen to this voice. This is a voice once in a lifetime voice. And she's not here anymore. Ugh. Right. It kills me. Right. Because every time when I hear I want to dance with somebody, if I were to do like a dance or remix version of it, I would acapella out the chorus had a lot of reverb and as soon as she hit her little high note extend the cowbells that 808 in the claps yeah but even her slow stuff oh my god you know that stuff from from the movie um it, it just was amazing it just i mean i could listen to it over and over and over that first album uh oh my god right and uh i want to talk about chic really quick because as we know the story behind freak out was that you're right now rogers and were. bernard they were going to studio 54 i think for grace jones they couldn't get in and they wouldn't let them in and then they said i'll beep off and then <laughs> bernard was like hey 
change it to this, it became a hit. And then we saw now Rogers go on to do work with Madonna for like a virgin, Duran Duran, and able to make that transition. David Bowie, Let's Dance, um, Diana Ross, I'm Coming Out. Um, He was, he's so prolific. Mm -hmm. And I think about Prince too, because when Prince came out, when he had, I want to be your lover, and all of his stuff, and then when he got into his to 1999, during Purple Rain and was- Sexy Dancer. When I, I when I got that in the first album, I want to be your lover went right into Sexy Dancer. So we would play that whole thing, and it was just like wow. And he was on a horse, naked on the cover with wings. It was just so surreal and wow. Right. When I saw him the first time, I will never forget it. Controversy had just come out and he was doing like a, a very small concert at the Palladium. He wasn't a big star yet. The Palladium became a club, but before it became a club, it was a venue where you saw artists and he was playing and I'll never forget going to see him. And he did that song, Head. And he started giving the guitar head. And then at the end of the song, the, the guitar, um, the, the neck on the guitar shot out confetti <laughs> like it was coming. It was, it was the best concert I ever saw. And then I saw him four other times. He was a dynamo on stage. Unbelievable. I've never seen a performer like that. Well, I've seen a couple, but... He was up there, man. His performances were a 10 every time. Dynamite, Lady Cab Driver, one of my favorite cuts off of 1999. I mean, just a stone cold, funky groove. And of course, Little Red Corvette. I would love to hear a a dance version of that. My God, that would be hot. Right. And speaking of, you know, international over in Europe, they have a good knack for making pop and dance. Could we look at the work that Jojo Moroder did with Donna Summer? We had Kraftwerk. Um, I Feel Love was covered by Bronski Beat UK duo group over there. And you had Layback with White Horse, which was later sampled by Monifa for Touch It. So what do you think that a lot of the European producers and performers- You know your music, man. Yeah, Yes, sir, I do my research. So what do you think it is about the European production over there to where they say, hey, we're gonna take what's popular in America, but add our own twist to it, use the TR-808 or the 909s and just take dance to a whole new level? Like everything else, something is, some of them are, are really good and some of them suck. I mean, there was one thing during the disco era, there was this whole Euro disco sound that I thought was crap. I mean, I was not a fan. And I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, if it wasn't good, I didn't play it. There were one or two that broke through, but a lot of it sound, sounded very manufactured to me. It wasn't about inspiration. It was about, okay, let's follow this formula and put it together. You know, A and B would equal a hit. And that's not what works. I've recorded a lot of records and I know that inspiration is what makes a record great. Right. And uh, you can't go in there with a formula. You have to be able and always, always keep an open mind. If this 
if you go in there with with a thought on what the baseline should sound like and someone walks in and they play a different baseline that sounds better go with it man don't be open to, oh no i this is what i want and no that's bullshit man that's bullshit right you're not looking to make a hit you're just looking to make an ego trip Right, because when I take a look at what Ace of Base did here in America when the signs broke, they are the first and only group act so far in the U.S. to have the number one song and album Nine Inch Nails too for that year. I mean, mm -hmm. And it's crazy, not even ABBA did that, and ABBA was huge here in America. I hated ABBA. <laughs> ABBA is a guilty pleasure. Either you love them or you don't. I, you know what? I, I don't even carry Dancing Queen with me. And I constantly get asked, play Dancing Queen. I don't even have it in my collection because it's such a commercial piece of crap. I just can't bring myself to put right. it on. Right. I can't, I can't do it. Right. Can we talk about Sylvester? Another one, not here anymore. Um, you ever hear his version of... Um, you are my friend, the Patty LaBelle song. Oh right. And I believe God. and I believe Martha Wash from the cover girl from the Weber yeah. Girls was singing on that as well. Two Tons of Fun actually was their first name. When in their first album, they were called Two Tons of Fun. And I got the feeling and just us were the big hit records. But they never became national. They were only big New York, LA. It was sad because Just Us, one of my favorite message songs ever. Um, and Over and Over by Sylvester. Um, he, again, that guy was so talented and we lost, I mean, him, Sharon Red. I was working with people with AIDS back then. And when we lost Sylvester, I was, I was upset, man. Mm. I was upset. Yeah, and then we had, um, in Believe 86, Jermaine Stewart, who got his start on Soul Train, put out uh, We Don't Have to Take Our Clothes Off, which was later sampled by Gym Class Heroes. Great record, great record. And um, it was just Jarell a great- knows his music. Yes, sir. It was just a great time period for music. And Martha Wash definitely got her money thanks to the lawsuit against uh, CNC Music Factory. And then uh, I believe it was Black Box with Strike It Up. Yeah. I, I just, you know, you're saying a great time for music. A lot of those records are still being played today. I mean, that's the sign of a great record, I think, is the lasting power of it. And, you know, I could still listen to The Love I Lost, Wake Up Everybody, you know, all those um, Teddy Pendergrass, well, it was Howard Melvin and the Blue Notes, but all those at Teddy Pendergrass singing those songs, I could listen to that all the time. And today, and you put one of those records on, like The Love I Lost, I go somewhere and I play that from the... Dun. Dun, 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 dun. You know, the piano in the beginning and people immediately they start screaming on the dance floor before it even comes in. They know what it is. And it's just. Music that lasts 
is truly inspired. Right. So I'm what, sorry, but I don't have much more time. All right, for so you so today. one more. So one more that <laughs> I get you on out of here. What is it that you think about Gamble and Hus production where they were able to merge soul and disco? I think mostly it was just good danceable R&B. And then they started to be aware that people were buying their records because they were danceable. I thought, oh, my God, prolific. Talk about prolific. Um, well, Billy Paul actually wrote a lot of his own stuff, except on his first album where they stepped in and they wrote a lot of the stuff. But um, Lou Rawls, the OJs. Teddy Pendergrass, How Melvin and the Blue Notes, all of them having these albums that were stuffed with good songs on them. And they wrote them all. It, uh, I could, prolific, amazing. There was a third person in that team. It was um, Gamble and Huff, and the uh, third person was a silent partner. Linda was Creed, the piano player. Linda Creed. No, it was a guy. Tom Tom Bell. Tom Tom Bell. Yeah, that's who it was. Tom Bell. Exactly. So mm -hmm. G Gamble and Huff and Tom Bell were the three that made all those records. Right. Now, yeah. do you have any shout outs you want to give before we conclude this interview and also plug your social media? Well, everything that I'm on is basically I, I got I got there early. So everything I'm on is just Nikki Siano. Um, and uh, I'm doing a big birthday party on March 13th. And you can go to my website, nickysiano.com. You can get a gallery t-shirt from my club, the original t-shirt. Uh, or come and hear my radio show on um, legendsofvinyl.com. And you just press the radio button. And I'm there every Sunday night at 6 p.m. It's just an hour. That's it. All right. Jarrell, nice talking with you. Nice meeting you. Yes, sir. Check check them out there. You can catch this podcast on all streaming platforms, Apple, Spotify, Anchor, TuneIn, wherever you stream, and also video portion on my YouTube channel, the same name. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, Mr. Nikki Siano. Nikki, thank you so very much for coming on, sir. Thank you, Jarrell. God Thanks bless. a lot, man. God bless.